I think there's this sort of misconception that oil is high right now. And it's driven, I think, just by this sort of misunderstanding and disconnect of oil versus sort of the things that we choose to educate ourselves about minimally in everything else. And so if you add oil, track what, let's say, top 20 metro real estate has done for single family homes, I mean, it'd be $250 a barrel and people will complain about real estate and then they go and buy a $2 million house and they complain about oil and then go fill up when it's $100 to fill up at the gas station. It's just a question of the speed and duration of a price. And so I think there's there's a lot more to go. And the way to tell there's a lot more to go is you have oil at 100 and you don't have the capital expenditures necessary to rebuild the infrastructure like we talked about. So yeah. you need you need oil to be so high that people feel safe again investing new money in a 10-year project. And people don't even feel safe to study petroleum engineering. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this one. Josh and I met over Twitter. Um, over a theme that I'm not as qualified to talk about and he's overly qualified to talk about. But um, a couple of years ago, I started talking about uh, just from local friends here that I thought oil and gas was um, not given the attention it deserved and, and you've made a career out of it. So let's just kind of set the stage with your career and kind of how you got into managing a fund that focuses on oil and gas public equities. Sure, yeah, happy to... Uh... Happy to walk through that. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, so I'm from LA and um, I went to the University of Chicago and studied economics. I did uh, management consulting out of school and then worked in, um, worked in private equity for a little bit after that as a generalist. And then actually had um, an intern who sort of changed my life. Uh, I had been investing for fun on my own uh, as, as sort of a hobby. And while I was working in private equity uh, in 2007, as sort of the world was falling apart, uh, my intern, who is now famous, Morgan Housel, he and I basically sat there for uh, three months in a room uh, over a summer and, and talked about value investing. And so at the end of the summer, uh, I ended up going and getting a job with a family office doing public equity investing for them and um, you know, joined them as a generalist and then ended up focusing more and more on oil and gas. Um, I launched a small hedge fund coming out of the family office that failed gloriously rather quickly. <laughs> um, and then uh, did a number of sort of one-off deals where um, mostly they were in public equities, mostly in oil and gas, and they were just sort of these uh, dislocated situations. And so the, um, the idea for Bison was after the oil price crash in 2014, uh, with a partner, we kind of figured that we'd take the individual special situations that we were focused on and or that I, that I was doing 
with these other family offices and with other sort of industry people. And I'd take them and um, build a portfolio of these sort of special situations in the oil and gas space, uh, a lot of which opened up because of the oil price crash in 2014. And so the idea was to do that for a few years until oil prices rebounded. And of course, um, <laughs> it's taken uh, more than a few years for that to, that to work out. But that's sort of the background and uh, how, uh, how Bison got started. You're patient. Um, what do you mean by special situations that you were working on? Uh, were these buying certain stocks or were these in private markets? What did a special situation look like? Yeah, so, so uh, mostly... Uh, mostly public equities. Um, and um, so like one example was in 2012, I believe, uh, this company that's subsequently defunct, uh, Gastar, uh, they had a deal with Chesapeake Energy, another company that went bankrupt. Um, and the deal that they had done years before had uh, fallen apart. And um, there ended up being litigation. It was as a part of Aubrey McClendon getting fired from Chesapeake. Um, and his whole team was sort of worried about getting fired. So his general counsel went and sued a whole bunch of people and sued Gastar. And so Gastar stock went from almost $5 a share to 70 cents a share over a relatively short amount of time. And, uh, when that happened, that was something where I went out to, a uh, retired hedge fund manager and a few other people and, and sort of lined up capital to go buy a bunch of Gastar stock at that sort of depressed price, got people in, let's say around a dollar. And then the last money out, I went over to a client at the time's house and uh, got him to sell the last shares at like $9 a share, <laughs> um, you know, out of his kid's retirement or kid's sa uh, school savings account, whatever it was, but made him sell. Um, <laughs> and so, so anyway, so that, that's an example. So, so the, there was litigation analysis there. There was asset analysis, cash flow analysis, and you know a lot of familiarity with the specifics of their oil and gas assets, um, but also a willingness to sort of spend time and to get into a situation that was very off the run. It wasn't cheap because people misunderstood their assets. It wasn't cheap because of um, you know sort of normal market forces. It was cheap because of the very uh, large lawsuit. Uh, you know, uh, it was supposed to be hundreds of millions of dollars, which was more than their market cap at the time of the lawsuit. And it was just wrong, the market reaction. And there were also structural reasons for that to occur, which is, you know, no one wanted to go spend the hundred grand or whatever on lawyers to evaluate the merits of the lawsuit. And then lawyers typically are not built to essentially speculate on litigation. And so, um, it was quite hard to actually find the right people to advise on it. And one of the clients, um, I guess he ended up getting divorced a little while after, and he asked his divorce lawyer to give his opinion. The divorce lawyer said sell. And so he was the only one who lost money on that. I think he got in at 120 or something and sold at 110 on an almost vertical trajectory from 70 cents to $9. So um, lots of lots of stories from that or lessons from that. But I guess the, just that's an example of, of one of the things I was doing uh, before launching Bison. Yep. Just to set the the stage, how how many uh, oil and gas or energy stocks are there? Like, how big is the investable universe of companies? And maybe more specifically, like, how many do you cover or focus on all of them or a certain subsector of them? Yeah. So there's um, about 500 publicly traded oil and gas companies. 
uh, between between the U.S. market, Canadian market, and other sort of uh, foreign markets, and uh, that's divided about let's say fifty percent to producers and fifty percent to oil services companies and other sort of related uh, companies that fabricate stuff for the oil and gas industry, provide sand, provide other sort of parts or, or sort of inputs, and so and, and then also refiners and other sort of uh, oil processors and transport companies, and so sort of across that whole space, there's about 500 companies. And, you know, I'd say I follow most of them somewhat closely in the sense that I'm always looking for this sort of next thing. Like I, my ideal situation is something like Gastar where I'm able to find a thing I can understand. Ideally I've already underwritten it. There's an event that reprices the stock and then I'm able to get in at an entry point that's way lower than what, um, you know, anyone would ever agree to sell me the assets for uh, in a sort of private transaction between me and them. And, yeah. and the stock market's wonderful and terrible in the sense that things can often trade wide in both directions of uh, what one would transact for in a in a sort of a quiet or calm private market. Yeah. And okay, are are you focused on service midstream, upstream manufacturing, or are you only focused on upstream or a subset of kind of those uh, the different industries within the industry? So, so I've most of the investments I've made in my career have been upstream oil and gas companies, but actually some of the ones I've done best on have been midstream or services or related. And you probably see this in your um, industrial real estate and other uh, real estate transactions where you look at one thing and then you end up learning a whole bunch about the stuff that touches it. And you probably find some of your best deals, not on the stuff that's shocked to you, but on the things that you learn from doing diligence on the stuff that's brought to you. Yeah. And so it's just like the nature of investments, the nature of deals. Um, usually the best ones aren't the ones that that are uh, just brought to you, but you learn a lot by go going through that. So, um, so mostly upstream, but um, actually quite a bit of exposure right now to services. Uh, no midstream exposure currently. I've been looking at that too. Just um, much less mispriced, relatively speaking, given the volatility in upstream. And then uh, upstream and services tend to be the most volatile. Refining and midstream tend to be the least, and uh, the market right now is hating volatility and it's hating small cap public companies. And so uh, that's sort of the nexus. I, I guess I go where things are hated because there's the highest probability of mispricing. Yeah, yeah, love it. You started in 2014 after the oil price crash, and obviously you kind of maybe thought the market would play out differently over the last eight years. For somebody that's not as in tune with what's happened the last eight years in oil and gas, Give me like an overall overview of what the market looked like post crash. You know, who was who are the main players? What was going on? What was the narrative? And then I kind of want to walk what's changed over eight years because there's a lot of different things that have changed. Um, ESG investor sentiment. We want cash flow. We have more data on fracking. All of those things. So I kind of want to paint a picture of from your view, having been so kind of patient in this industry for eight years how things have changed and kind of what, how your mind has changed with it. Yeah. Uh, so, so we launched it in, um, we wanted to launch it in January of 2015 and launched it in May of 2015, okay. uh, but it can still sort of walk you through the whole thing. So, um, I mean, you know, I was active in oil markets 
prior to, to launching Bison. So really experienced it from the end of the last cycle and was investing professionally in oil and gas since 2007. So I guess my joke is that I've been doing it since the last time it was popular um, <laughs> or, or profitable or both. Um, and so uh, that no one thought that the 2014 crash, one, that it would happen or two, that it was as big a deal as it ended up being. And so one of the things I'd say that's colored the market, and we'll go through kind of, uh, I think it's a, a really good exercise. It's not something I've done in a little while, and there's a real risk that my take on it now is going to be really different than it would have been if you asked me three years ago or five years ago. There's a lot of sort of uh, mental uh, revision that we do, and I spend a lot of time in evaluating investments, making sure that I sort of unwrap my biases and try to almost fade them, you know, trade against my biases, just because um, it's it's so important to do that, in, especially in public markets, where a lot of pricing is driven by sentiment rather than by intrinsic value, uh, especially in the short term. Uh, opportunities open because people hate something or think something or whatever. So, so there's, there's a lot of risk, and I guess I'll caveat on that. Um, so it used to be that oil and gas producers... Um, that, that there was this idea that oil was trading in a band and that the upper end of the band was uh, OPEC's ability to sort of flood the market at, let's say, $120, $130 a barrel. Uh, there was oil that was off the market from Iran and Venezuela and increasingly over time, uh, even though there was some that was getting sort of smuggled or whatever. And so there was this idea that there was an upper band and then there was a lower band where OPEC and others would sort of defend the market, cut production, and and there was this idea that oil would be in this 80 to 120 price band. And so if you have a stable price band, you have what's happened up until, I guess, this year in other asset classes where you end up with a sort of high multiple that continue, that like creeps higher as uh, cost of capital declines, as markets mature. And it had gotten to the point where producers, upstream producers that, you know, incur all kinds of risks like we know now and all kinds of uncertainties, upstream producers were trading for, let's say, seven-ish times EBITDA. And, you know, in some cases, they had no free cash flow because they had to reinvest all their cash just to keep production flat and pay their debt and, and pay their people uh, and overpay their managements. And so um, seven, seven to eight was sort of the norm. Uh, if you bought something really discounted, maybe you got it for four or five, but it had a lot of hair. And then, you know, the best companies were maybe at 10 or 11 times EBITDA, but they were growing or some other sort of reason. And so coming into 2015, uh, there was this essentially half off sale where, especially on the small caps, you could buy these things for, let's say, four or five times EBITDA. And um, they were all growing because at that point, companies were still reinvesting more than their cash flow in drilling. And there was a, a concept that they were supposed to grow. And that's like what they were in business for and that oil was scarce. And so, so you start in this thing where there is this expectation, even though Saudi and Russia were sort of dumping oil in the market uh, and there wasn't this lower band, there was this idea that it would just sort of reset whether because shale was way more expensive, which it used to be, um, or because you know Saudi or others would just sort of give up and cut back on their production in order to reset the market back to that band because the band was very, very valuable to them. And um, it was a fiscally irresponsible decision on their part, frankly, in retrospect and at the time for them to do what they did, but they did it anyway. 
So, so that was kind of the frame was, Hey, there's things that are cheap. There's things that were very cheap and things that were kind of cheap. And, um, the idea was to come by the very cheap things and be careful to not own things that were too levered, to not own things that were too problematic and be able to get the uplift from the, this sort of temporary mispricing. So that was the mindset in 2015. That was very common. It wasn't a differentiated, uh, approach. The differentiated approach was to do these sort of special situations in a portfolio of public equities as a fund. That was a different thing um, than than consensus. So, so I'll, I'll stop there, and then happy to sort of walk you through the, the rest of it. But I don't know if you have questions, or if you want to sort of set it a little differently, um, or if you want to want to keep going from there. No, I, I think we can keep going. I think the only thing I would ask is. You said in retrospect, it was poor fiscal decision making by the Saudis. And I think what you're alluding to is that they kept pumping the same supply and kept prices down for a long time. So they sold more of their barrel oil, more of their oil barrels in the ground at cheaper prices than they probably sh- could have. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so they, in 2014, uh, at an OPEC meeting uh, during Thanksgiving, they announced it uh, the night of Thanksgiving. Uh, they decided to uh, increase their quotas substantially and flood the market in order to put U.S. oil shale out of business. Yep. And that was essentially, they basically said it. Um, and their thought was that the break-even cost for shale was roughly $80 a barrel, which they weren't wrong about. It probably was actually $90. Um, and they saw that shale was growing, which it was. And they thought that if they lowered the price by raising production temporarily, they could force these competitors and this new supply stream off the market. And you know they had had bad experiences in covering for growing fields in the 80s and in other prior periods. So in the 80s, they were absorbing from essentially 1980 to 1986. They kept pulling supply off the market and eventually... I think it was 85 or 86, they just gave up. And because in the North Sea and other places, there were millions of barrels more per day of production than they expected when they started pulling production off in the early 80s. And so they just gave up and flooded the market. And ironically, actually, that's one of the things people don't really talk about this, but it's one of the things that caused the fall of the Soviet Union was the the Saudi flood of oil production. The Soviet Union was getting a lot of their hard currency from their oil sales. And when oil went from, I don't know, like 30 or something US dollars at the time to 10 or eight or something, uh, it really hurt their ability to um, finance their sort of communist experiment. And so um, so that that's sort of the, the backdrop was trying to put shale out of business. And it was, it was a miscalculation for a few reasons. So one, um, shale was going through a, a productivity and cost curve where uh, costs were falling and wells were getting more productive. And so it turned out that shale wasn't really uh, the swing production that they thought it was. And so there were these slowdowns in development intermittently. So there was a big slowdown uh, in early 2015 after the price crash got sort of incorporated into budgets. There was another big slowdown in 2016, a similar thing. There was just this, this huge crash end of 2015, early 2016, that was sort of a culmination. And then another slowdown in 2020, uh, when the Saudis and Russians got into a price war. And so um, those each of those, there was a brief slowdown, but the reality was that from, let's say, 2012 to 2020, 
2020, essentially, that was sort of the peak or maybe 2018 uh, peak of shale productivity and, and cost uh, reductions, uh, shale wells got essentially twice as productive and their break-even costs went down more than half. Yeah. And so, um, so that was a really big change. And I think they just didn't understand it. And in the end, let's say they could have gotten $75 oil through that whole thing. Shale probably wouldn't have grown that much differently than it did. Maybe there would have been an extra million barrels a day produced that Saudi and OPEC could have withheld from the market. Um, and in, in aggregate, just the amount of reserve depletion they experienced, um, the amount of sort of fiscal suffering they experienced, the amount of instability in the Middle East and elsewhere from this sort of volatility, um, to me, it seemed like a very, if here as well as sort of through that process, it seemed like a very poor decision um, to, to choose to, to not more actively manage the oil market. Yep. A couple uh, quick questions. Is Saudi the largest producer in the world? Uh, there are top three. I think it's the U.S., Russia, and Saudi. Okay. And um, I'd have to double check on which one is uh, number one. I know it might sound weird, but uh, I think there's some some fluctuation. I think I think they might be number three at this point. I think it might be U.S., Russia, and then Saudi. Okay. And then real quick, and then we'll kind of move on throughout the years. But you kind of said something about Iran and uh, Venezuela, and those have been kind of more recent topics that maybe folks are becoming aware of, but you'd kind of said maybe there's oil coming out of them and it's on the black market and we don't trace that as well. What do these those countries, Iran and Venezuela, that have huge oil reserves, like what do they do with all their oil because they've been kind of shut out of OPEC? Do they just feed themselves on it or is this black market much larger than we think and it's actually going somewhere? Uh, well, I think I think... It depends on we. I think the industry understands that there's, I think it's close to 2 million barrels a day of Iranian oil that's exported. Okay. Maybe it's a million and a half, but it's sort of in that range. There's a whole fleet of tankers that are um, sort of gray market or black market tankers. In some cases, Iranian oil is brought by one of those tankers. And then in the middle of the ocean, they, they or Indian uh, the Indian Ocean or some other sea or something, they'll they'll move it from one tanker to another. In other cases, they'll bring the oil somewhere like to a physical uh, harbor and and sort of drop it off and pick it up. It's sort of what you might have heard about what's happening with the, they joke the Latvian blends for Russia, where yeah. Russian oil will get dropped off in Latvia, which does not produce oil, and then uh, Latvia will be selling oil. And I don't know if this is still happening, but it was early on in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And there was an easy way. It sounds dumb, but it somehow was able to evade sanctions that are very, very loosely enforced. And so, yeah, there's there's over a million barrels a day of Iranian oil that's been on the market since sanctions were put on. And I think it might be closer to two. I'd have to go back and check exactly. It just sort of, it, it, that doesn't actually vary that much. It's basically been on uh, for years at this point. And then Venezuela is very unfortunate. And it's one of those things where when you hear people, US politicians, other people talk about, hey, let's like <laughs> try the socialism thing a little differently. Um, in many cases, some of these politicians have become more famous or more prominent as yet another socialist experiment fails even more gloriously. And so Venezuela has sanctions, has been having issues for years, and it's gotten to the point, I mean, it's almost more extreme than in the book Atlas Shrugged. Uh, th their production capacity 
imploded. Uh, I think they were producing over 2 million barrels a day at one point. And um, I think the, at the low, they might've been producing 200,000 barrels a day. And these are from low decline fields that require relatively little investment, relatively little maintenance, and just all kinds of issues, people stealing the oil, uh, equipment failing and not being replaced, pipelines having all kinds of, you need to do some amount of maintenance and none of it was happening along yeah. with a lot of stuff getting stolen and whatever. So um, I think Venezuelan production is up a little bit recently. They've been bringing in money and expertise from various uh, places that either don't care that there are sanctions or there are some sanction waivers. I think Chevron's trying to get some waivers, but they've, I think, gotten their production up, let's say from 200,000 barrels a day to 400,000. But like you said, I mean, there's huge reserves there. You just need, you really need a different regime and sort of different economic and social order there in order to get much more production than you're getting right now. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, all right. So let's kind of move on uh, from 2015. Then what starts happening? Yeah. So, uh, so shale is getting more productive. There was essentially a, um, a private equity bubble uh, that inflated, I guess it started inflating before 2014, but it really kicked off because institutions thought they were brilliant for throwing money into an industry that was distressed putting it into valuations that were astronomical um, to go and drill a bunch of wells in West Texas or in various other places. And they were spurred on by a few of those investments being very successful. And um, credit, actually, some of the distressed credit guys did quite well in that sort of first two crashes. So in the um, 2014 crash, credit blew out and you could go buy bonds for pennies on the dollar and they recovered. And then the 2016 crash, there was a similar sort of distressed uh, credit opportunity. And so the credit guys did okay, um, not the um, sort of more vanilla credit, but there was this big private credit rush. The distressed guys did well, the vanilla ones did very poorly. And the private equity funds sort of had this smattering. Uh, there were a few huge successes and a bunch of failures as the shale experiment mostly worked in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico and mostly failed almost everywhere else. So you got production up, but you didn't really get cash flow. In many cases, you had to reinvest a lot relative to, um, relative to what you were making on the wells. And so you ended up with a huge amount of production growth and a huge amount of private capital. I mean, I think it was well in excess of $500 billion that Damn. came in. Um, it was a huge economic success from a US GDP perspective. Um, it really helped the U.S. become less uh, energy dependent on foreign countries, um, but it was an economic disaster. And in addition to securing low returns for the institutions that funded those investments, it also glutted the market and there was way more oil and gas production um, and you know very low returns for everyone, public, private, uh, whether they were growing a lot or not. Um, and then from my perspective, it was challenging because I've never really liked super high growth investments because there's a lot of risk and uncertainty around those growth profiles. And if you have to pay up for something, you end up having to pay a lot more for success. So you're if you're paying 80 cents on a dollar instead of 30 cents on a dollar, uh, you really need that dollar to be there at 80 cents. But if you pay 30 cents and it ends up being worth 50, great, you almost doubled your money. So um there's a, there's a lot of uh, demanding aspects of going and paying $50,000 an acre for land in West Texas to pay the drill on it. 
And so the problem was with all this capital coming in with almost no concern around free cash flow or returns or really anything other than delineating it and then dumping it into the public market or selling to another private equity fund or whatever, um, without that sort of economic control, you ended up having production coming on that flooded the market and you ended up pushing these 30 cent dollars down a lot. And so, you know, a testament to, to us, we, we survived and we were able to do okay despite sort of all of these economic pressures. But there was really, it was very strange. You could buy something that was stable and generate a lot of cash flow and it, was, it would be disadvantaged by uh, people essentially coming in, drilling crazy wells that made no sense. But, you know, there was a lot of initial production. It'd flood the market and then they'd hand it off to a public company that typically we wouldn't own because those companies, they were paying, let's say, $2 for every dollar of value. And lo and behold, those stocks would crash, or in many cases, those companies ended up going bankrupt in one of the later uh, later downturns. So I'd say really 2015 to 2018 was punctuated by this just really poorly thought out, uh, poorly executed shale boom and bust that was mostly private market funded. Yep. So lack of economic control, lack of uh, mandates for cash flow and profit and more kind of just growth, kind of like, I mean, I'm not saying it's venture capital, but similar kind of mindset, grow at all costs, worry about cash flow later. And that was kind of the believed mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things where you see a lot of institutions say, oh, hey, we're not investing in oil and gas anymore because of ESG. And some of that is sort of environmentally driven or concern about environment driven. And some of it is they lost giant amounts of money investing in the industry. And there were some, there were some governance issues and there were some economic issues there that I think are important to talk about and consider. Um, and, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of that, you know, well, that I'm kind of hinting at sort of where maybe where we're at now and where we've been for the last couple of years. But I think I think it's it's unfortunate. Sometimes you can just like look at something and say, "Hey, there's a bad idea," um, and we've done that probably to our detriment. Like some of these things were just scams or like yeah. total misleading opportunities, uh, and we would tell institutions when they'd ask us, and then they'd get mad at us for telling them not to do a private deal. In some cases, they do it anyway, and then call us five years later and say, "Hey, this didn't work." It's like we told you. <laughs> um, so you know, they didn't want to hear it, but they did it, and then now it's like, "Oh well, that." there's never I'm wrong. It's always that thing is bad. Yeah, and yeah. again, like it's very important to, as a principal investor, to be able to say when you're wrong. I mean, I'm wrong sometimes. I was wrong that shale ended up growing like it did. And I was wrong that people would choose to burn 500 plus billion dollars on uneconomic development and hurt a lot of these companies that weren't doing this sort of uneconomic activity. In the end, it worked out. But you know, it's, I, I just I think it's very important to be able to say when you're wrong, and I think there's been this shift from that time frame and from sort of that experience that 2015 really started 2012 to 2018. Like, hey, let's go light capital on fire. To hey, <laughs> the industry's bad. It's not our allocation process. So I think it's very similar to venture, right? Because we're about to see. I mean, there's been a lot of um, public companies that have traded down a lot, and the claim is, oh, the private market's different, and we're starting to see some write downs, but I think, I mean, you know, it's not my expertise, but it does, it does seem like there's likely going to be very, very large write downs in tech venture capital if they haven't happened already, yeah. just, just to get them to mark more in line with what's happened on the, the public company. So yeah, I think uh, big similarities. 
I don't know if this is a statement or a question, but when you think about that period of time and you and and we can now look back and see it maybe as more recklessness, would it also be fair though to say that we didn't have enough enough data yet on fracking? And so throughout that period, what what comes up again in conversations is there was still a lot of believability that one, the decline curves on these wells wouldn't be as steep as they were. Um, And then two, I know that, and we don't have to get into benching and everything else, but that there was probably, you know, one of the cool things or interesting things about oil and gas is in real estate, it's like, here's a building, there's 200,000 feet. In oil and gas, you're underneath the earth and you're like, we think there's 200,000 feet, but there could be 400 or there could be 100. So maybe the question is, as you think about that period of time, how much was that also being driven by this kind of fracking revolution and not enough data yet to go, okay, maybe we were wrong about these decline curves or maybe we can't get as much oil out as we thought? Like, Was that kind of baked into that narrative of why 500 billion came in? I mean, I'm sure that was part of the sales process for those assets, and I'm sure that was part of the fundraising process. Yeah. But I don't think, I think some of these things were predictable and like that you okay. knew ahead of time that that was happening. So, like Alta Mesa is one I wrote about, you know, it's something where they did these giant fundraisers ahead of the IPO and they stuck it in a SPAC, which I think should have told everyone what was going to happen. <laughs> and then, you know, and it just, it didn't make sense from the very first fundraise. It didn't make sense. And they showed comparable land valuations. And, but like there was, there was almost this institutional impetus to do it anyway. And like the, there were very few people who put their own money in it. It was always other people's money. It was always employees of things that were allocating. And, and it's very frustrating, right? Cause yeah. like, I'm a guy like, I'm the biggest investor in my fund. None of this is a solicitation by fund or anything, but like I, I invest my money and I invest other people's money alongside mine and stuff that I think is good. And it drives me crazy to see people go allocate other people's money. That's supposed to be good, like used for funding scholarships or like curing cancer to go speculate on land where, you know, ahead of time, there's a very high probability of loss, but you yeah. do it because you want to keep up with X, Y, Z, other endowment or foundation or pension or whatever. And that's like the generous explanation for some of that stuff. Got it. And so, um, so no, I think, I think a little bit of it's that a lot of it was, that was the sales pitch. But like, when you look at some of the biggest successes from a private perspective in that era, the, some of the biggest successes ended up vended into companies that went bankrupt shortly after. Like Alta Mesa is an example, right? It was supposedly huge success in private. And again, I don't mean to rag on them too much. They're just the easy one that I've talked about before. (laughs) Um, It's not, and some of the people involved were great people and it's not an indictment of that. It's just sort of an easy name of specific one that, you know, went out gloriously through the SPAC and whatever. Um, But you could tell ahead of time, you knew that it was a low pressure area. Um, you knew what the well results had been, you knew sort of what the uplift had been so far from various different techniques. You knew the trajectory for well costs. I mean, you didn't know for sure, but you could assign a probability and engineers do this all the time and they're not always right, but they're often right. And they're often right enough that on an expected value basis, it was, uh, it was predictably bad. The, the investment there on multiple fronts was negative expected value. Um, so yes, it's true that you know you don't always know what you're getting, and there have been these fantastic right tail upside outcomes. 
But even the right tail outcomes in many cases resulted in zeros for the buyer, which which is is an indicator I use, you know, because I'm looking at companies where and people who have run different companies. And so I'm trying to best understand track records and uh, a sale that's profitable that then gets written down fully in a year tells me that maybe I want to be careful to buy from the people that did that sale more than um, more than it tells me that they're so talented that they're likely to sort of repeat the uh, the success that they had had at that end. Got it. Okay. All right. So the we're all drunk at the party. Uh, 2018 ends. We wake up. We're a little hungover, and we start realizing that was a lot of fun, but it was kind of dumb too. All right. So what happens from 2018 on? Okay, so, so I think the most frustrating thing about this sort of seven, eight year journey has been um, that shale was rolling over starting in early 2019. It looks like we kind of had peak well productivity around 2018. And so some of the things that had pushed uh, break-even costs down, some of the excitement of sort of the new plays and new benches, there have been almost no new shale plays that are needle moving uh, in North America since the Delaware Basin was sort of expanded. So that's the Western part of the Permian Basin. Um, so since that discovery and since that was really pushed, I mean, it's been around forever, but since sort of the Wolf, Wolf Camp and Bone Springs uh, activity that ramped up in Southeast New Mexico and sort of uh, far Western Texas, um, since that ramp up, there's not really been a next one. And there was an improvement in well productivity there. And it kind of peaked out in 2018. And as that peaked out, that was around when productivity was peaking out or when it was uh, it was possible to see that it was had already peaked in the Eagleford and Bakken and other sort of places that people had been uh, drilling aggressively in other in these other sort of less prominent shale plays. Um, as that happened, and as a bunch of the frontier ones and second tier ones sort of became, it became more obvious that they just weren't working. So again, picking on the Permian, there's uh, there's these two sort of legs. There's the Midland Basin and the Delaware Basin, and then in the middle is the Central Basin platform. And there were a number of companies that were claiming that you could drill horizontally there and that it would work just as well, and it didn't. And um, so, you know, 2018, 2019 was sort of a time frame where that became apparent too. And so you had the industry already rolling over. You had rig counts starting to fall. You had, again, like people becoming more aware of well productivity peaking. Um, OPEC was starting to have some production issues. It was starting to become clear that there were some issues uh, in what became OPEC Plus. You know, the, the world under investment in offshore and um, in international onshore a lot of these things were sort of starting to come to a head. You started to see oil prices meaningfully recover and equity prices starting. It was There was a sort of false dawn late 2019, early 2020. Uh, JP Morgan came out with their sort of famous super cycle call beginning of 2020. And then the world shut down for COVID. And just so you had this like, uh, and it had been frustrating. Uh, twenty four, so twenty fifteen, false dawn. Uh, twenty seventeen, twenty nineteen, and here you are, early twenty twenty, and things really are like looking not so bad. And there's going to be this sort of slow uh, recovery. Oil was going to go from fifty, I think it got to sixty or so, um, in the beginning of twenty twenty, and and then you know world shuts down, and there's a price war as that's happening, and 
oil you know goes very low, negative for a day, and um, all these companies that were started like starting to pay off debt and starting to return capital and the like logic and economics had been returning to industry and just everything gets wiped out. And here we are. What's oil today? A hundred and yeah, a hundred and three, I think something like that. It was 120 a month ago. Uh, and, uh, and it got down. I mean, it was like $20 a barrel for a few months. It was, it was pretty brutal. It was negative $30 for like a day. For a day. And it was $10 or so, I think on average for a month. And then, and people just gave up. And there was this weird narrative, which I think is sort of when you started, it sounds like getting more interested in this. And I think this is sort of the moment where people figured it out. I think where there was this new wave of investment and new wave in, in washed out equities, right? Very little new drilling money coming in. But um, a, a, new, a new set of investors for the industry, a new set of eyes where there was this very powerful narrative that oil demand had peaked permanently and was going away. Incidentally, many of the private equity funds that had led the charge on losing money in shale um, launched alternative energy vehicles, launched SPACs, um, and bought frothy businesses. I guess they're in that business, not really capital allocation, but chasing capital. Well, chasing capital that's available rather than narratives, rather than chasing economic returns. But this whole set, and it's not about any individual one, just this whole set sort of turned and suddenly they were like, we're energy experts, but energy means alternatives and launched these big funds and big SPACs. And so, and they actually contributed in a number of like research firms and sell side firms, they, they became the SPAC experts and the alternative energy experts. And it's interesting because since then, some of them are like, oh no, no, we do oil and we never, but it's like, no, like <laughs> you, you can't, I mean, I guess you can try to delete what you put on the internet over a year, but it's pretty hard and, you know, people can not, can find it without too much challenge. But so there was this extreme negative narrative that oil was going away right now. And a conflation of what governments were doing, which was forcing people to stay at home, forcing them to not fly, forcing them to not engage in commerce, uh, that was not mostly people's choice. And where it was their choice, in many cases, they were being scared into it rather than it being something that they, you know, they weren't being presented, let's say, with all of the facts and all of the sort of relevant risk weights on the information that was being provided. And so some people were scared, some people were forced home and forced out of it. And that was just not indicative of the likely steady state. And the reality was that likely the world was going to recover. And so there was this big false narrative in the middle of what should have been the start of a cyclical recovery after a very long down cycle. And so so that's that gets you to like November of 2020. Everyone's like, this is dead. My largest investor pulled their money in November of 2020 and told them, hey, guys, like, just hang on six more months. Um, and they just did not care. It's like, hey, it's a community decision. We're just, that's it. You know, we're, we're kind of getting out of oil and gas and we're pulling money from Bison. That's it. And uh, I mean, it was crazy, right? Because you can see uh, the reopening was happening. This was after the vaccine approval. This was, you can see every week inventories were falling rapidly. And there wasn't enough drilling and there wasn't enough service capacity. And so, um, you know, uh, that was a very challenging time for me and for Bison. And the decision was to stay in business, keep investing for the remainder of our clients and to essentially like increase our risk, like basically go and own 
uh, companies that were a little bit more junky, but a little bit more torqued to uh, this improvement in commodity prices. And instead of owning things like we did through COVID, I don't think, I think we might've actually had no bankruptcies in our portfolio, which wow. was incredible. Maybe you had one, I don't know, but like a very uh, relative to a portfolio of let's say 15 or 20 names at the time uh, and relative to just the absolute devastation and the commodity price. I mean, imagine like not getting rent for two years from all your properties and no government aid and no, I mean, it's just, uh, and, and like, but the lenders still want to get paid and everything needs to, it's, it's amazing that these businesses survive. And so we went from no foreclosures, no bankruptcies to sort of repositioning a little to be uh, in companies that did survive, but where it was closer for them and where their break-evens maybe were $40 oil instead of 30 or $50 oil instead of 40. And, you know, it's been, it's been a pretty remarkable run uh, since then. All right, let's kind of make the second half of this conversation. We're here today, and I think there's just a lot of there's a lot to unpack of how we got here, and there's a, there's a, probably a lot more narratives going on now that the gasoline prices are seven eight dollars in some parts of the country, and so it's on the forefront of everybody's mind. A couple things, real quick, just to kind of set the stage. How many barrels of oil does the world consume a day on average? I think we're close to 100 million barrels a day. Okay. And that's global. That's not America. That's what the, the world needs. Yeah. Um, okay. And you come off this kind of 2018 party. Um, there, there's a camp that says, okay, there a lot of the reason why we are experiencing what we're experiencing today is... None of these companies were making money. A lot of these investment firms went pencils down and said, we're not giving you money in oil and gas. And there's been this incredible uh, underinvestment happening over the last five plus years. That's pretty fair to say, right? There, You want to add on to that like from a numeric yeah. standpoint? How underinvested are we because of the stupidity of you know, five years ago? Yeah. I mean, so it's complicated, right? Because I just talked about there being an investment boom. But the investment boom was so bad for the industry and for the global economy because these were almost all wells where 80% of the production was seen in the first two years yeah. of the production of the well for their likely life of the well. And so you had this boom in investment, which culminated in a price bust and where a lot of that flush production is gone. And so you still have uh, companies using the production they're getting from shale to reinvest to sort of keep their production flat, but that's a very capital intensive process. And so you had this just, what you needed at the time was offshore development of large fields that are not very capital intensive once they're developed that could build and sustain a production base that could adequately supply the world for a number of years. And so, um, that whole value chain got eviscerated. And so what's kept me so bullish, medium to long-term, is that there's there was this underinvestment really starting in almost 2012, where offshore started to roll over. China stopped growing as fast. And so you know global commodities started to fall off in 2012. And so from there, that was maybe the peak of the offshore boom. And we've been in this sort of 10-year offshore bust. And eight year or so international oil on onshore oil development bust. And so you need a whole value chain to get rebuilt. 
And so you don't have the fabrication and you don't have the equipment to make the equipment and the people to make the things that the people will use who also aren't around anymore, have retired or in, in a different industry and require way more compensation to come back. So you have this whole evis- evisceration and COVID really was like a nail in a coffin for a lot of these a lot of uh, drill ships and uh, offshore supply boats and factories and all kinds of stuff got repurposed or scrapped. And a lot of people lost their jobs where they'd been hanging on and just went into a different industry or retired or whatever. And so, um, yeah, you have this like very long cycle capital missing. You had a lot of short cycle capital that had rushed in and (laughs) got lost. And so you're in this like weird situation where the global decline rate for oil is probably close to 8 million barrels a day. And people estimate sort of four to six, but I'd go with probably closer to eight. And so you need to replace 8 million barrels a day of production just to keep oil production flat. And that's a problem because the world is growing demand annually by a million barrels a day and has been for the last 40 years. And just to catch up to that trajectory, which means that people in India and China have access to gas-powered scooters to bring their products to market and other sort of really basic stuff, um, you need essentially 103 to 104 million barrels a day of oil production. So we're missing a few million barrels a day. And to get it, you can't really solve the problem with shale. It, shale's kind of played out to some extent. You can grow maybe another million barrels a day, maybe slightly more than that from shale eventually. But there's this just big industry that's missing. And you know, it's actually part of why I think we started talking. Like, I think there's this huge opportunity in Houston and in other markets where you know there's just all these jobs missing and people missing, and they're gonna need to get hired and need to things that need to get built and done. And there's just it's hard to quantify. There's so much stuff. And you look at how many people were employed by these companies and how much economic activity happens. So you need all that to get rebuilt. And the volatility that we're seeing in the last month that we've seen, you know, oil prices haven't gone vertically from $40 to 104 or wherever we're at right now. They went from 40 to 70 to 50 to 100 to 50 to 120 to 90 to 120 to 90. That volatility scares capital. And if you're an endowment or a you know pension fund or you're a long-term oriented equity investor or just a, a wealthy person who's interested in investing, like it's scary and it's hard to stay in. And the the tendency has been for people to get excited and to get sort of a fear of missing out. And so they end up buying at these local highs and then getting their face ripped off. And then they sell and say, hey, I'm never investing in oil again. And that's like a sort of small investor psychology issue, but it's a big issue from an industry perspective, because if you need to rebuild $500 billion or a trillion dollars worth of essentially infrastructure between the upstream and the services and you know hiring all these people and training all these people and having like a generation of new petroleum engineers and geologists and fabricators and mechanical engineers, et cetera. If you need all that, you need it to be very profitable and it's not. And so, you know, and, and that's a long answer to that question, but I think, I think there's really just this huge thing that's missing. And even though prices seem relatively high, the instability is sort of pushing off the recovery of longer term, less capital intensive supply and so I think I think we have a, a big bull run to go to be able to get enough money being made by the industry and by investors in it 
to be able to fund this huge development that needs to happen. Yep. Okay, we'll kind of summarize that as um, almost like an, I'm not saying we have to rebuild the whole industry. We're still producing 100 million barrels a day, but we. But if you look at the future 10 years, we're not set up to meet the 10-year demand. And that has been caused for reasons that we've discussed. Okay, kind of second pillar that's maybe working against the oil industry. And I think that the overall theme here is when the average American hears, well, gas prices are high, and then they're hearing out of the White House, we'll drill more. Even if you could, we're not talking about days that things happen. We're talking about years, if not a decade, for full things to kind of take shape. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Okay, so number two would be kind of this ESG movement. And then we can kind of loop that into governmental action where, at least right now in our country, but also a lot of countries in the world, the top leaders of the world are... are maybe not paying attention. I don't know what they're doing, but they're basically saying like, we hate oil and gas, even though we need it more than ever. So let's kind of start with number two, like how is the ESG institutionals pulling out? We believe in clean energy, not in dirty oil. What from a numeric standpoint, capital coming in, but other factors, like how is that impacting the industry? Yeah. So, so I think, I think the easy thing is labor. When you have the president of the United States and you have equivalent uh, world leaders and you have uh, influential people, whether they're actors or professors or whatever, when you have them saying that the oil and gas industry is one, evil, and two, going away, you scare away the people that you need in order to keep production flowing for long enough for any sort of energy transition to be able to happen. And I mean, there are some like math problems with what people represent from an energy transition perspective, where you look at countries like Norway, where they've shifted heavily towards electric vehicles, and yet their oil consumption isn't down. And so even if, even if there were a large energy transition from a vehicle perspective, which is sort of the threat that's presented for oil and why oil supposedly is going away over the next 20 years, even if there were such a transition, um, it wouldn't mean that oil is going away. And there's a lot of evidence for that, including countries that have been trying it and are seeing that it doesn't make oil go away. So, and then there's various uses for oil outside of uh, gasoline, but it's less about the specific uses and more about it being tried. It's sort of like socialism, like, you know, and, and in many cases, it's sort of uh, connected in terms of this sort of like, uh, centralized control, what's yours is mine uh, sort of mentality. Um, I mean, it gets really sort of like bucketed in and, and where where this stuff is tried in many cases, it's sort of tried by parties that are interested in sort of collectivizing ownership and, and so on. And so um, when you have that impetus um, with the sort of narrative fighting the science and fighting the engineering and physics, you end up with not having the people, like there's one, um, I, I read this the other day, there's one petroleum engineering student at the University of Calgary. And <laughs> that, that's like, I mean, there used to be, I think like a hundred a year or something that would graduate. There's, there's one. Um, you, you need someone to be figuring out where Canadians are putting their 200 something rigs to work to be able to supply enough oil. Even if you think there's going to be half as much oil in 30 years. You still need some and you're not getting the people and you're not getting the people because they're being told it's going away. And the people you get in many cases 
maybe aren't the people that you'd need. Because if you need someone that's brilliant at math and science and that person can read and can listen to their prime minister or president, uh, they might choose to go into some other sort of field instead. And so you end up with uh, multiple aspects to that labor problem. And so um, I think I think that's a real issue. And I think there's a lot of deflection and people are really afraid for various reasons um, to, to talk about this. But if you can't be positive about something, you can't expect it to be there when you need it and when you want it in the capacity that you want it and need it. And yeah. so uh, negativity just results in more negativity. It doesn't, you kind of need there to be broad acceptance that oil and gas is necessary and is going to be used for a while. And you need there to be substantial economic rewards for everyone involved. And until you have that, you're going to have intermittent, potentially persistent shortages of oil and gas. And so I think that's sort of the interplay of ESG. And you know, there's issues with capital as well. I think the capital issues get solved by enormous profits. And um, you we're still not seeing fund flows into oil and gas yeah. um, funds. Uh, you're still seeing sort of net outflows on the private side. Again, a lot of these private funds, from my perspective, embarrass themselves in terms of calling oil going away, getting involved in things uh, like SPACs that have generally been very disappointing. Um, and now we're sort of trying to rebrand again. But again, like that probably shouldn't attract capital, just given the sort of non-clear view and ability to sort of assess cool-headedly with what's happening or going to go on. Um, but even outside of that, uh, there's still this sort of flow of capital, even with oil over 100, out of the industry, uh, private funds that have promised to exit the industry um, that historically were sort of opportunists and would come in and deploy a lot of capital when there were cheap, uh, cheap stocks or cheap assets to buy. Um, so we haven't I mean, we haven't even stopped that. There's not, there's, it's not that there's not enough inflows. There's still outflows of capital from the industry. So between the labor issue and the capital issue and the, I mean, re regulators are tremendously problematic. They're still adding to regulations for the industry. So again, if you want an industry to accomplish something, you deregulate it. If you want like rents to be high, you don't allow people to build new stuff. And if you want rents to be low, you allow people to build a lot of new stuff. Um, uh, same thing from an oil price perspective. The more you regulate the industry, the more you tax it, the higher the prices are going to be. Um, so again, it's sort of this very disingenuous thing where it's like, you guys are bad, so we're going to regulate you, so your prices are going to go down. And it's like, well, you can't, yeah. can't have all of those kind of pick two. When you say that private funds are promising to get out of oil and gas, who are they promising? Who are they making these promises to? The air? Who, 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 who do <laughs> the they- The public and to their LPs. So- why? Um, I'll pick on I'll pick on Apollo just because this one is is kind of interesting. Um, so Apollo's either current or recently former chief investment officer, I'm not sure, one of their founders was associated with Jeff Epstein, and so it's, it seems that in a sort of way to like continue to attract institutional investment, and they've done extremely well, right? Like great firm, they've done extremely well, great track record across many of their funds over time. Uh, great people working there, really hardworking, you know, nothing bad to say about them. Uh, but this individual was, who is a face of the firm, uh, was closely associated with and apparently personally paid Jeff Epstein all this money for all this different stuff. And so around the time that that was getting publicized, the Apollo came out and said, we will no longer invest in oil and gas. And, you know, I don't think it's hard to connect the dots in between like the same week or a week later, 
them saying, I mean, okay, so they're trying to keep limited partners, uh, despite a sort of giant scandal and association with a known felon and, I don't know, things that like, you know, don't pass basic due diligence uh, issues. And so um, it's hard to not think that other decisions like that aren't being made, you know, not for sort of so such extreme reasons, but it's hard to think that there isn't some economic trade-off in terms of assets under management versus uh, optimizing for returns or even like the right decision, right? I know a number of the people that use different firms and like they're good people. They understand that oil is necessary. They understand we need to drill more of it. And it's just not their choice. Like yeah. they're, you know, if they're not the senior decision maker and the firm has said, hey, we are selling, their job is to sell. It's not to, yeah. you know, go fund a bunch more wells, even if we're having an issue and actually probably need to drill some more wells. Is there anything on the horizon? Um, I, I would assume the answer is no, just based on like recent comments, and we're going to get into gasoline, but that that we're going to unify as maybe a, a government, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, and say, look, we're going to kind of change the narrative here. We're starting to get the repercussions of what we just described happens over years and years of calling it evil. Is there anything I'm missing that's going, hey, maybe this will change in the next couple of years? Or do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? I, I'm, I'm not really a political analyst. I, yeah. I, I don't see anything, but you know, that's not to say that it won't happen. And I, I hope it happens. And I understand that maybe I'll make a little less money if that happens and that's okay. I'd rather just have yeah. the world be adequately supplied and have like Sri Lanka and Pakistan, like <laughs> have access to gasoline and natural gas and other sort of basic things that their very poor people need in order to make their lives better. Yeah, because when we're making a decision to not drill, it's not just America. We're talking about billions of people that are barely getting running water and, and very basic energy needs met, and they're just now ramping on. Yeah, I mean, so I was just in California for a cousin's wedding and interacted with a number of people uh, who told me about how bad and evil it is that I'm involved with the oil and gas industry. And it's a very weird thing because, again, like I think it's a moral good. I think I'm helping some of the poorest people in the world be able to have energy that allows them to live at a minuscule fraction of the energy intensity of those people who are telling me that I was bad for doing it. And so it's like, okay, like you drive your SUV, but you want oil and gas to go away and your clothes <laughs> are made out of oil-based products and your home is full of oil-based products. I mean, it's like the, the protesters that went and sprayed using oil-based spray paint and super glued using hydrocarbon-based glue while wearing clothes made out of hydrocarbons, uh, you know, to protest oil. It's like, okay, which, what, what, is this an advertisement for or against oil? Cause it does seem like there's uh, there's something, but it's really, it's just like very complicated puzzle, right? Because how do you, how do you extract yourself from that? And the best I can tell, it requires just new leaders because it's very hard for people to change. It's very hard for people to say, hey, I was wrong. No one's ever wrong. It's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else that did something wrong. Yeah. And so I think in order to, to have that happen, we just need new people uh, to be running these things. And it takes a long time and is quite complicated in some cases to get new people. How much does the current situation, if you're underwriting the market, uh, have to do with the current invasion of Russia and Ukraine? Um, maybe the question is, like, how big of an impact is that currently having on oil prices? And if there is a treaty or, or this all goes away, 
are we going to see a crash in oil or is this not as big of a deal on the oil markets as we're making it out to be? I'd say right now there's actually a discount because of what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Wow. Um, so there, there was an amount of oil that was reduced in terms of exports from Russia at the start of their invasion of Ukraine. And that amount has reversed and Russia is currently exporting more oil than it did in February of 2022. And so there are some complexities. So um, Russia is exporting less gas to Europe and there are other sort of things that are going on that are driving higher oil demand. But just from the pure sort of headline, there's a peace deal. Sure, oil prices probably fall because quants and algos don't understand this. And then as there are continued oil inventory draws, so as the oil that's in inventory, that's indicative of the current supply demand situation, as that oil falls instead of rising, the price will rise likely substantially. And if you look at the OPEC plus deal and sort of what's happening, you basically see that Russia kind of got out of their deal with OPEC plus and is just exporting more than, than they would have. Um, in, in aggregate, OPEC plus is actually exporting less, but Russia is not. Russia is exporting uh, what they can, it appears, fully plus whatever they stored in inventory. And you know, I think they're worried that there are sanctions that end up being effective. But I think at this point, from a $100 or so oil price level, I, I see there being upside to the end of an invasion. Uh, there'd be economic rebuilding. There'd be hopefully trade ties that are restored over time. Just again, like, you know, how much did the random Russian person on the street have to do with Putin deciding to invade Russia? Probably very little. And so, you know, rebuilding Ukraine, uh, restoring trade ties probably is oil intensive. And there would probably actually be less, I mean, there's just not going to be more Russian oil exports subsequent to a war than before a war. Yep. Got it. You kind of said earlier, you said, I think we've got a bull market ahead of us for a while. So now we're taking that off the table, kind of set the stage in lots of different ways. When you say there's a bull market for a while, does it mean we just kind of hover around $100, $120 for the next four or five years as we continue to rebuild until change narrative, kind of change these things that have long cycles? Or is there is there something that you're looking at that's maybe not obvious that goes, no, we could see two or $300 oil? So I have a, I have a hat back here, a $250 WTI hat. So, uh, and it was like, it was a joke. My friend has a subscription service or stocks or whatever. And so he made a bunch of those and $500 uranium hats and whatever. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think the issue, I think people see the price and they think, Hey, oil prices are already up and therefore it's done. And I think, I think it, it doesn't help oil that a hundred is sort of a very even number. But if you look at rent versus like what you're paying in rent, if you live in an apartment or what your home value is right now, if you own your home and you look at where it was 15 years ago, right? Your home value is not where it was 15 years ago, unless you're in Detroit or something like basically anywhere else in the country, anywhere else in the world, your home value is several times where it was in 2008. And oil is below where it was in 2008 and below where it was in 2011, below where it was in 2012. And so I think there's this sort of misconception that oil is high right now. Um, and it's driven, I think, just by this sort of misunderstanding and disconnect of 
oil versus sort of the things that we choose to educate ourselves about minimally in everything else. And so if you add oil, track what, let's say, uh, top 20 metro real estate has done for single family homes, I mean, it'd be $250 a barrel. And people will complain about real estate and then they go and buy a $2 million house and they complain about oil and then go fill up when it's $100 to fill up at the gas station. It's just a question of uh, the speed and duration of a price movement. And so um, I think I think there's there's a lot more to go. And the way to tell there's a lot more to go is you have oil at 100 and you don't have the capital expenditures necessary to rebuild the infrastructure like we talked about. So yeah. you need you need oil to be so high that people feel safe again, investing new money in a 10 year project. And people don't even feel safe to study petroleum engineering. So you need petroleum engineers, right? So you need like four years of school for a whole bunch of people. You need them to be convinced that it's a good career, which again, like I don't even know if it's such a good idea at this point, right? They need to get paid like a million dollars a year to do it because they don't know versus like software engineering or some other sort of thing. If you're a petroleum engineer and, you know, if you believe Biden, like you don't have a future. And so why would you ever choose to study that if you're competent and can do chemical engineering or software engineering or something else? You do it because you get paid so much and we're just not anywhere close to that, right? So that's the labor side on the capital side, similar sort of thing. So the way you get to that is you have radically higher prices. And it sounds like crackpotty, but it's very strange because in almost every other aspect of the economy, we have things like that. I mean, you have uh, software engineers where up until very recently coming out of school, they were making, you know, amounts of money that you and I, if we came out of school and were making that would have just been amazed, uh, even on a sort of inflation adjusted basis. Um, you have prices of things up hugely and you have oil at a price that's so low that people don't want to make multi-year investments and where there's a tremendous degree of of uh, uncertainty that's not shared in almost every other sort of similar economically necessary uh, commodity or asset class. And so I just think, I think you need prices that are hard to imagine. You need them for longer than you can think. And you also need valuations for these businesses to be radically higher. I mean, at two times EBITDA, you're not, in many cases, these companies are not trading anywhere close to their replacement cost. And if you look at capital cycles, you get new capital investment when you trade above your replacement cost. If you trade below your replacement cost, like you're way better off as an entity just buying back shares, paying off debt, paying a dividend than you are going and replacing your capital. So you need five times, seven times. You probably need it to be higher than it was in the last cycle because there's been so much pain and so much capital lost. You just need such astronomical and stupid returns and such high prices for so long that you end up luring enough capital in. And I mean, my plan is basically just own these things until they trade for like a reasonable price. I don't even need the craziness, um, but it just doesn't make sense to expect that this cycle would be different from all other commodity cycles and that it would end due to just sort of hopes and prayers instead of due to oversupply and due to demand destruction from prices being so radically high that people take a very price insensitive, uh, price inelastic thing and actually stop consuming. So yeah, I think, I don't know, I don't have an exact price target. It's just, I think, I think the, the whole framework around oil is people being scared and framing based on sort of the last crash instead of 
framing based on this just tremendous opportunity, scarcity of capital, scarcity of labor, and just inverting all of the fear, all of the um, negative stories, all of the politicians that hate it. That just means more profit and for a longer period of time. Yeah. And again, like it's not it's not something that's like very hopes and prayers driven. It's a commodity that clears, and there's inventories that are reported weekly and monthly. And um, you know, there's all this weirdness in the paper market. Um, and I guess just the one last thing on that, like there are real recession fears right now. And the more people are afraid of recession, and the less they're investing, and the more volatile equity prices and commodity prices are, in uh, the context of fear of recession, the less investment there is, the less supply there is. And even if there is a recession, there's insufficient supply, and then there's grossly insufficient supply on the other side of it. And so when I think about with my money, with my client's money, like what do I do knowing that there's a reasonable chance that there could be a recession and it could be a bad one? The problem is just that we haven't solved any of these problems. And so I can't predict exactly when there will be a recession. I don't think anyone can. And I can't predict when there might be a price crash or not, but I, I do understand the supply and demand dynamic. And so it does seem uh, like the bison just sort of face into it and say, hey, here are these things, they are too cheap and they will be worth a lot more. And this is going to be painful because <laughs> I'm facing into the storm and I'm just, you know, you just can't not from my perspective, um, or I, I can't not just knowing sort of what is necessary in order to get to a point where we actually have the opportunity to have a cyclical downturn. This is an investment advice, but it, when you look at it that way, it could you could make an argument, you know, two times EBITDA. There's not a lot of money still coming in. People are paying back as dividends rather than uh, plowing that money into more oil and gas. Uh, that things are still relatively cheap if you looked at it over a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's easy to say from a sector perspective. It's more complicated to talk about sort of individual stocks. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think the sector is very cheap. We put out uh, white papers on it, trying to understand what it meant that Warren Buffett was buying so much stock in oil and gas companies recently, trying to understand where the companies are in their historical context, trying to see sort of within the universe of oil and gas stocks, where companies are disproportionately benefiting and where they're disproportionately cheap. And yeah, I mean, it looks when you when you step back and look at it from a historical perspective, I mean, it looks very promising and, you know, people say, hey, is this like 2007 or 2008? And they forget that that was after essentially seven years of substantial investment amid a multi-year price run where there was way more capital available and where companies were spending a lot more of their cash flow on development and where there hadn't been a similar sort of evisceration of the supply base. And so, you know, I think, I think people just... What should reframe a little bit how they think about the industry. And I think it really helps to look at, you know, whether it's crude volatility or the prize or Twilight of the Desert. There's, there's these various books that I think are helpful uh, in, in starting a frame to think about sort of what's happening in the industry. And I think it's just too easy and simple to say, oh, the prices went negative in COVID and now they're 100, therefore they've peaked or therefore, and, and it just doesn't, it sounds good. It sells newspapers. It gets clicks, um, but it doesn't really make sense when you think about it from an economic perspective and when you try to project out what could happen, what may happen, what's likely to happen. 
So you can't just call the gas station owner and say, lower your prices, Mr. Gas Station Owner. See, what was so weird about that? So right now, actually, gas station <laughs> margins right this moment are actually pretty wide. And people don't really want to talk about it, but that comment was wrong at the time. And then there was this very weird moment where the price of oil gapped down basically $20, right? There were like two big, there was one, um, I was supposed to be on vacation for this uh, wedding that I was at in, in uh, uh, California. There was this big gap down in oil then, and then uh, there was a big gap down uh, this week, uh, Tuesday morning, right after the holiday, right before the market open, um, $10 off the price of oil in you know essentially no time. And so it was very strange because the price movement led to this dislocation for gas prices, gasoline prices at the pump. Um, and, and so the president, I mean, I don't know, maybe they messed up his script and he was supposed to be saying that now and not two weeks ago, but it did turn out that it was right. There's this price movement that no one can explain. And I've like tweeted about it to try to just like solicit explanations. I've seen various explanations. The best explanation is either that a fund blew up, uh, like a trading house, uh, because there were these issues in Europe uh, and, and this US LNG plant. Um, or just that there's, you know, we know that the Fed intervenes in the equity market and will, um, there's a plunge protection program essentially where they'll not just buy uh, mortgage backed securities, but they'll buy other securities in order to support the market at certain points. And so it's not that far to say, hey, if you have the mechanism to, and the team to go and trade stuff in one direction, couldn't you go and trade stuff in another direction? I mean, it's not. It's not that far, I guess, to say if you're intervening, intervening directly in the market that you might intervene a different direction. But the the comment, and I know you said it as a joke, but the Biden saying that <laughs> like a week and a half ago, a um, week ago, before it happened and then it happening in terms of gas stations, it just seems like they messed up the script. And so I know it sounds weird, but it's like, hey, you look at market activity and no one knows in terms of short term. It's like, why well, I don't trade short term oriented stuff. I'm not like in and out of the market. Hey, I'm going to go long and short and whatever. Only the things I own and tend to hold them for multiple years. Um, but uh, but it is still interesting to see. And, you know, it's not evil gas station owners, you know, gouging the market. It's first in, first out. So if they paid $5 for their gasoline and, you know, now they're having to sell it for $4.50, that's the going rate. They'll sell it at $4.50 and not 4 even if the price of oil fell by an amount that would have implied that it would have gone from five to four. Right. So it's not, it's just a accounting mechanism and it's a com very competitive market, but it is funny since you mentioned that, and it's probably <laughs> maybe not a uh, rant I should have gone on, but you know, it is, it's just fascinating to see the market mechanisms. And I guess it's just another way to describe how hated it is that there's not some commodity fund that's out there that's big enough to look at this and say, hey, the market's not clearing, right? Like there's not enough oil. There was even an inventory draw the EIA announced today. There, there's been draws the last few weeks. Like there's probably going to be draws for a while going forward. We're drawing a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. There's not some big fund that's a big pool of capital able to say, hey, oil's down $10 right now. We'll take it. We're the bid. And so I think I think that's indicative too, even to the extent that there wasn't sort of uh, any direct intervention in the market. Um, and again, all that's tied to your comment about gas stations and the gas station owners making extra money, which they are at the moment. Uh, but like, this is like the highest margin moment for gas station owners since 2020. And it probably will last another two weeks. And then 
um, they'll go back to earning like two cents a gallon on gas and making money on you buying soda and convenience <laughs> stores. Americans love soda. I like Diet Coke. Um, all right. Well, you kind of answered the, the question that kind of spun out of that, which was after everything we've talked about, there's been a $20 drop in oil, uh, which again, we're talking about days and weeks, not a long-term time horizon. Do you want to add anything else other to how that could have happened other than there's speculation and you don't really know, nobody really knows? Um, like, how does it just drop 20 bucks? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, it does, again, get back to how do you stabilize the industry and how do you get investment to be able to get enough production growth to have world production stop shrinking. Yeah. Because again, we have a mil like 8 million or 6 million barrels a day every year that used to get replaced. Someone needs to pay for that. And yeah. it's expensive. It's, you know, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars that needs to get spent. That's not getting spent on a, over a multi-year period. It's just not happening. So, um, so, you know, I guess like the one other possibility, and this is the scary thing. And it's like part of why I was soliciting feedback, uh, and it helps to have a lot of followers because then people share stuff and maybe eventually you get some DM from someone saying, hey, yeah, China's shutting down or some other sort of information about the about you know something that, that may not be well reported. Um, and it's not so the, the big risk was is is China shutting down again. And if they were, then maybe oil should have fallen 20, maybe it should have even fallen $40 a barrel because China is a big incremental consumer of oil. And if you drop consumption by a few million barrels a day by government diktat, I mean, we know that governments can crash the price of oil by shutting down their economies. And China's having more and more trouble doing it just because their economy is suffering so much, partly because they keep shutting it down and they understand this. And so their shutdowns have slowed and they're less common and world shutdowns are slower and less common. And th that does seem to be a pretty sustainable trajectory. Um, but that, that's an example of something that might have been getting priced in that um, that was a real concern. But again, they're not being that bid when the price gaps, right? It, it shouldn't have a functioning market with well-capitalized buyers and sellers might have seen the price move down $2, not $10 or $20 over that time frame. And then on the equities as well, there's just no bid. And so you know, it's, it's awkward to sell or buy into those sorts of circumstances because like, who are you buying from? Who are you going to sell to? And without sort of the return of capital, without it being sort of socially acceptable, what you're seeing is companies just going and re returning capital through buying back their own stock and paying off debt. And there is this real potential for over time, um, the industry to just rather than spending money on drilling where they're not rewarded for the extra cash flow they generate, um, there is this potential for the industry to just return capital through share repurchases. And the more, the sloppier their shares trade and the more they trade down and the closer they get to one times EBITDA instead of two times or two times instead of four times, the more aggressive the companies will be, at least some of them in terms of repurchasing their shares. So, um, you know, re really there's not, I think, a lot of insight that I found anyone has had on this uh, commodity price movement. But again, that sort of movement with that sort of path without a good explanation, um, it just constricts, it constrains capital, it constricts investment. And it just means that you need an even higher price. Like every time this stuff happens, this is the 
fourth big pullback since uh, the oil bull market started in November of 2020. Like every one of these just raises the stable price necessary for oil by, let's say, another $10 and the amount of time it needs to stay stable by, by another, let's say, year before you get broader acceptance of investment in the industry and before you get the starting blocks to get to a point where you get to oversupply again. Yep. All right, man. Yeah, this was great. I've uh, I've learned a lot today. I'm you know I'm in Texas too. I have a lot of friends in the industry, but just this ten year history and kind of the way you framed it over you know the last seven eight years was was incredible. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. I think it's a perfect time to put a bow on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. And you know it's great to get to see your success and. Uh, follow your, uh, your purchases. And, uh, you know, I hope that, uh, I hope that these buildings stay full or fill up and that your rents skyrocket because, <laughs> uh, because this, uh, industrial boom, I guess I'll, I'll just say one other thing, which I think, I think it's brilliant to be doing what you're doing. And I'll, I'll this is great to have on the podcast. I'm happy to talk about this. There is, the, there is a plentiful amount of natural gas in the U S relative to other parts of the world. And so in addition to, what should be happening, which is an industrial boom for oil and gas, there should be an industrial boom here in the U.S. more broadly, and Texas is a great place for it, and Houston's a great place in particular for it, just there's space, and there's qualified people, and there's great universities, and so um, low energy prices and Texas being a great jurisdiction from a regulatory perspective and a tax perspective, I, I think there's going to be industries shifting here to the U.S. and to Texas in particular, um, due to our advantage energy supplies and uh, advantage energy costs, and so I think it's it's quite smart to be doing what you're doing. And it's some of the stuff like we put out charts on European energy costs versus U.S. and natural gas there versus here, and where oil prices are, and that they're having to burn oil in Europe for power because the natural gas prices are so high. So you know, I think it's it's great that you're you're doing what you're doing. I think that it's a it's a smart thing to do. And over the next years, Texas should do very well and U.S. industry should do very well. I appreciate it, man. Uh, that means a lot. Um, I, I would, I'd be remiss to say, I don't, I, I, I agree with you. Not that I don't agree with you. I do agree with you. Um, and the, the interesting part of all this is all of this population growth and all of these relocations and all of these people that are slated to come here, they're not even here yet. Uh, the next three, four, five years is when people actually start arriving, just like oil's a long cycle, moving a whole corporation here doesn't happen the day it's announced. And so uh, I think you and I both are lucky to be in Texas. I think we know that. And um, it's going to be a bright decade for Texas, maybe much more than that. I agree. Great. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks, Josh. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.